Did you know it's uh, important at times to look back from where you've come, to realise and be encouraged that you have come a lot longer and faster and, well, you've come further up the road than you really realised. And you take some sort of comfort in that. You've been on a journey and you've been so preoccupied with that journey you didn't realise how long and how far you'd come. That's why God says through the prophet to Israel, remember, go back and remember the pit that I dug you from and the rock that I carved you out of. And we're going to do a little bit of reminiscing today as we go on in our study of Ephesians chapter 2 and beyond that. The Apostle Paul lived in the reality of what God was doing in his heart at that precise moment. That's why he wrote so many letters, because he was so aware of where those many thousands of people that had come to Christ under his ministry were now sort of traveling a journey, and some of them were finding it easy and were blessed in wonderful ways, like the church at Philippi. But then there were those like the church in Ephesians that had all complex problems and finding things, well, just a little bit difficult to cope with. And their difficulty is with, as most of us find out, with others. You see, those in the church, and there was quite a contingent of them that had been saved out of the synagogue, these Jewish believers had been good, upstanding members of the Ephesian community. They loved, they loved the law of God, didn't fully understand it and strove to fulfill its demands and, of course, failed there. And so were relieved when someone came, Paul and others, and told them that, look, adherence to the law or your attempt to obey the law will not save you. No man is justified by keeping the law. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And they believed that. And of course, Paul spent much time, a lot of time, painstakingly going through the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies and the promises and the principles of Christ as foretold by the prophets. No doubt Isaiah figured very prominently. Maybe Zechariah, certainly Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all these wonderful prophets of Israel. And they were familiar with those promises, but Paul was able to connect those promises and the expectation of those prophecies with Jesus. He became the sum total of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so they began to believe and they began to make great strides. And then they had a big bump in the road. And we all have those when we're going on with the Lord. We need to. And what was the bump in the road for the Jewish believers? It was that there was this influx of Gentile believers 
who they had known to be corrupt and vile and vulgar and coarse and polluted and defiled and evil. And now they were standing across the aisle and with hands upstretched were worshipping the Lord and the glory of the Lord was upon them and they were speaking in tongues and worshipping the Lord just like the Jewish believers. And they thought, how is it possible? How is it possible that they have the same degree of grace that has come to us? And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, the Jew has a big, big, big problem. Christ to him can be a stumbling block. Because you see, they are looking sometimes for God's commendation, not wanting any condemnation, because they believe that in their sincerity have striven to please God, serve God, honour God, obey God. Whereas these Gentile believers, they were Gentile dogs, growling and gnawing and and doing all kinds of defiling things. And here they are, sharing a common faith. So there was a schism, the basis for disunity in that church. And that's why the whole book of Ephesians is written. Paul's writing to the Ephesians to remind them that the inclusion of the Gentiles is because this was the promise that Isaiah mentioned. This was the promise of Abraham or a promise to Abraham. It was a promise that Moses was aware of and spoke about. The coming of the Gentiles under the banner of God's almighty love. That was going to be something that would be a miracle indeed. A people who were not a people became the people of God. And so in this chapter 2 of Ephesians, we have the Apostle Paul saying something like this in verse 4, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying that in Christ... And only in Christ, there is this divine fusion between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They come together in lost condition and meet in the centrality of the Saviour, Jesus Christ, and they together are saved. They're raised up together, verse 6, and made to sit together 
where? In heavenly places or heavenly spheres in Christ. In other words, there's no superiority being a Jew and inferiority being a Gentile. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And remember what was said in the first chapter, this wonderful statement, and it's simply this, that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we might enjoy his blessing, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Wow! That's Ephesians 1 and verses 3 and 4. So the Jewish believers were sort of puzzled and nonplussed. They were staggered that these Gentiles who had no, no interest in the law of God now are as one with them, seated alongside them in the heavenly spheres. And that in the ages to come, verse 7, chapter 2, they would show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness through Jesus Christ. Now we've seen little pictures of that in the Christian Gentile church. I remember many, many, many years ago, about 60 years ago or even more, when the church was largely balanced and deep and um, I suppose populated by people that had been saved for a long time, who loved God and certainly felt comfortable with each other, serving God, coming into church on a Sunday, armed with a nice Thompson chain reference Bible, who studied the scriptures, who spent time in prayer. And then there was an influx of people that came in that came definitely out of this very darkened world. And I remember one lady, and she came and she was... Uh, obviously a lady that had been really captivated and controlled and bound by the world of sin. But she heard the gospel and she heard the voice of God and she was born again of the Spirit of God, baptized in water, serving the Lord in a miraculous way. There was just a little hesitancy, a little bit of a drawing back by some who sort of thought will she continue or will she go back into her old life well I can tell you that 25 years later I met her and she was a pastor's wife serving the Lord with dignity and grace you see there is this sort of them and us type of attitude and it was clearly seen in Israel of old, and even, sadly, even in the Christian church, when Jewish believers came in and were gloriously saved, they found it hard to assimilate and embrace the Gentile believers. I remember many years ago, about 40 or so years ago, I was in a prayer meeting once and the church I was pastoring was a good, stable, strong 
church. It was colourful. It was nice. It was good. It was healthy and wholesome. And then there was this tremendous inroad of people who came into the church from drug-affected backgrounds, sins of all kinds just dripping off them. But night after night, they would be found at the altar, weeping their way through at the cross of Jesus. And I remember in a prayer meeting, one of the ladies that had been in the church since she was carried there as an infant said to the Lord, Oh Lord, can't we have some normal people in our church? And I thought, this is normal. This is the biblical norm. This is the norm of the gospel. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's found, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, verses 25 to 30, if you're following it. Come unto me, all you. And that, of course, is linked with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes, whosoever. And so they may not be religious and they may not be religiously inclined or may not have any sensitivity towards religion or even respect for religion. But then in their darkness, they saw a great light. God transformed their whole understanding and they saw the need to be born again. They saw the need to receive Christ to be saved, to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be made righteous in his sight. God, who is rich in mercy, chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, when we, 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 plural, when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together. So the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians had the same passage, that narrow path that leads to life eternal that they had to traverse. And God raised us up together and made us sit together. So... What we were, whether we were religious or whether we were just polluted in darkness and sin, we were all lost. For all had sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was none righteous, no, not one. But then Christ came and revealed himself and said, follow me. Well, they repented of sin they believed in him, they forsook all, and they did indeed follow him. Over a period of time, you and I will abide in Christ, and the things of God will become familiar. The things of God will become our lifestyle. We'll almost get to the point where we say, this is our culture to know peace and contentment and joy, to know victory, to know blessing, to know this wonderful sense of well-being and fulfilment. But we need to be careful that we don't 
lose sight of the immensity of God's grace that brought us to this place. Well, what is this place that we have entered into? Well, I'm turning back to Matthew's Gospel, to that very scripture that I just quoted a few minutes ago. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel chapter 11. And we go to the 25th verse. I thank you, Father, says Jesus in prayer, O Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these eternal things from the wise and the prudent, have revealed them to little babes. Even so, Father, for it seems so good in your sight. Revelation comes to the humble of heart. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. This is what Jesus says. And no one knows the Son except the Father. No one could understand who Jesus was just by seeing him or hearing him. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Oh, they say some. Some of them think you're a great prophet. Some even think you're the reincarnation of Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist, who was martyred and has risen again. Well, he had that characteristic of the prophet. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that got this revelation. And that's so important, this revealing to a babe. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends that testimony and says, you know, Peter, that didn't come from your background or your training or your religiosity or even your fervency to be a good Jew. That came by my Father who is in heaven. And then he says these words to all that were listening, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want to talk about this rest. Remember we talked about the fact that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Well, over six decades ago, there was a man who spent much of his life being persecuted in China for his faith. A man that took the title and the name Watchman Knee, knee indeed, N E was his name, but he put in front of that his title and began to explain his role in the Christian church as a watchman, taken from the prophets. Again, Isaiah, a watchman on the wall, sounding the alarm, sounding a warning, sounding out the truths of God's word. He was a Bible teacher probably second to none in the great ingathering of, of believers in the Chinese church. And then internationally, after he died, people took his notes and they collated them and then they rewrote them and then printed them and they are bestsellers today. He wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians and he called it in three words, sit, walk, Stand. 
And he said those three words really, in a very, very graphic way, are able to describe the three stages of our walk with God. Sit, that is the rest of God that Jesus prophesied and promised here in Matthew 11. I will give you rest. And then in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. How different that is, a state of being to the state of being that we have in our lost estate. In Isaiah 57, we read these words. I create the fruit of the lips, says God. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. You see, there's a prophecy regarding the ingathering of the Gentile nations as well as Israel. And it's seen in those phrases there, peace to him who is afar off. And Peter talks about that in Acts 2 and verse 38, that the promise is for you and for your children and to those that are afar off. And that's how the Jews saw the Gentiles, that they were remote, that they were cut off, not just afar off. But God includes us all because he loves the world and seeks for the world to be incorporated into the kingdom of God. And so we read these wonderful, wonderful words in Isaiah 57. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You see, there's been a savage tearing away between the two, between the Jew and the Gentile. But in Christ, who is yet to come, there will be a healing. There will be an interweaving. There will be a fusion between the two. But then he talks about the lost estate of all mankind, Jew or Gentile. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up all the filth of the mire and the dirt. And that's what our world is like. It's always been that way. It's probably worse now because there are more on the populated part of the earth. But our chaos, our darkness, our sin, our degradation casts up all the filth that is within our hearts and minds. And it's coming out, the pores of our nature. It's coming out through our lips. It's coming out through our mind, our decadent minds. It's coming out, polluting the young, the old, the in-between, taking away hope, taking away the love of that which is good and holy and pure and chaste, and taking away our peace. And Jesus says, oh, for you 
who are so tossed about and having no peace, come to me. You're laboring, you're tortured, you're tormented, you're fragmented, you're heavy laden, you're cast down. Come to me and I will give you rest. Because you see, he becomes our righteousness. He becomes our truth. He becomes the answer to the dreadful need we have, which is forgiveness, cleansing, healing, deliverance, restoration. Christ is all in all. And then take my yoke. You've been under the yoke of the prince of the power of the air. You've been under the yoke of the evil one. You've been restless. You've been tormented. You've been, in a sense, absolutely riddled with fear and torment. But I'm taking and breaking that yoke and I'm going to put my yoke, which is one of discipline and order and sweetness, and my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. That's what taking the Sabbath was really all about. That Israel of old was to work very hard, very diligently, and work six days a week, and not to be slack, and to sow and to reap and to be prosperous and so on. And then on the seventh day, complete rest. But you know, it's a sign also of life and the rest of redemption that we have. We live, we work, we enjoy life to the full, and then we say to ourselves, we need to recoup. And you know, as we have been scampering through life, good, bad, or indifferently, as we have gone hell for leather through life, suddenly we realize we need a saviour. And we stop short of striving to be our own saviour or to, in some way, some way formulate our own salvation. We can't do that. It's impossible. We live life to the full, and that's fine. But when it comes to salvation, it's out of our hands. And we have to rest. That is, we have to cease from our own works and rely upon him and him alone. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. As I turn to it now. The whole book of Hebrews, 13 wonderful chapters, all about the fact that God has taken the initiative and God has worked everything out after the counsel of his own will. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks about entering into his rest. Because it says here in chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered 
his rest, that's God's rest, has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. In creation, six days, he created the cosmos, the world, the universe, and all that inhabits it, including mankind. But on the seventh day, he stepped back. And we have striven to live our lives and to find solutions to every aspect of our life. But then when it comes to our redemption, we say, hands off. We step back and we say, just like the hymn writer, there was no one good enough to take away my sin. Only God can give us eternal redemption. And that's what Ephesians says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are not saved by our striving or even our desire to know God and to be godly and to try and be godly in our own strength. It doesn't come that way because you can't keep up those acts of righteousness. I certainly can't. I have the desire, but I haven't got the ability to fulfill those appetites and desires. But Christ comes in and he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. John 14 verse 6. And that's where we find rest for our souls. That's where we find peace in our hearts. That's when we find personal acceptance. We are accepted in the beloved. And that's where, looking to the left and the right, we can accommodate, we can incorporate, and we can welcome sinners in who just like us are saved by grace. And we find our rest and we find our joy and we find our peace and we find as a result a relationship with God on the fact and on the basis that we didn't purchase our salvation. He did it for each and every one of us. And the great temptation will be to rest on his laurels and then begin to presume on that. And that we can't afford to do. We'll talk about that at another time. Thank you.